Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Uh, Tonight we are continuing our study in the life of Paul. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand up in the air and get the attention of one of the ushers. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Galatians chapter 1 tonight. Uh, We are getting into the book of Acts um, some point in this series, just not tonight, uh, but next week I I think we will. Um, But let us do this. Let us read. If you're in Galatians chapter 1, I just want to read... Three verses, Galatians 1, 13 through 15, as the springboard, and uh, we'll have some other scripture. It'll go up on the screen, um, and you can follow along with us as we go. But uh, let's do that. Let's read these verses, then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll begin tonight what God has for us. So uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, um, Paul, the author, he says this. He says, for you have heard of my conversation, that just simply means my lifestyle, in time past in the Jews' religion, that is prior to him coming to know Jesus, his life before Christ, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, ruined it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, called me by his grace. And uh, that he goes on to talk about the revelation of Jesus in his life and how God began to work in him. But uh, the verse I want you to see is verse 15 when he says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, his work in my life, his call in my life um, began when I was still yet in the womb, before that even happened. Father, we just come to you tonight, and we just want to thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the revelation of it. Thank you for the way that you uh, reveal to us what you're doing in our lives, what you want to do in our lives. And we uh, come to you tonight, Lord, as one body, as one, one mind, one heart, Lord. And our purpose and desire is to hear your voice, to have you uh, speak to us, Lord. It's the, the voice of God that is so much more powerful than the voice of any man. It's the truth of God that we desire. So, Lord, would you please fill us, enable us to hear you tonight. And would you speak to us from heaven? And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the title of our our series, our theme is Devoted, and it's a study of the life and the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, And in the the light of that, I think of of something that Jesus said uh, when asked what is the greatest commandment in all of the law. Asked that by a group of um, Jews that were very zealous for the law. And the reply of Jesus, he said that the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, and with all your strength. So with all of your spirit, uh, with all of your soul, and with all of your body, with everything that you have physically, you are to love the Lord. That is the one great command, the great desire of God. And if you were to sum that up into a single word, that word would be devoted. That is to be devoted to God. Okay, that's what it means. It means to be fully passionate about whatever it is that you are devoted to. Whatever is your first love, that is what you are devoted to. And whatever you are devoted to, that usually is your first love. That is 
all that there is, okay? Now, we understand if we are alive and we've lived through some things in life and we've been devoted to a thing or two over the course of our life, we understand that devotion is more of a process than it is an event. You don't just wake up one morning and you're all of a sudden devoted to whatever that something is. You know, we hear Jesus say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. We just say, okay. And then we, you know, and it's not like it just happens like that. It's, it's a process, okay? And devotion, it, it has a pattern. It begins with an interest. You have an interest in something, a curiosity, And then that curiosity leads to an interaction. You taste of something, you put your hand to something, you you experience something on a very uh, introductory level, you're introduced to it. Then that introduction grows into an infection. You are gripped by it. It has more of a hold on you. You think about it more. You're more passionate about it and it, it intensifies. And that infection then becomes an infatuation. It's all you can think about. It's all you want to do. It creeps into your thoughts, whether you want it to or not, when you want it to or not, you're infatuated with that something. And then as that grows, it becomes a part of your identity. Or if it's something big enough, it becomes the whole of your identity. You're just identified by the thing that you are devoted to. And so we all kind of understand that. We've lived long enough, uh, even if you're a child, to know what it means to kind of be devoted to something. We know what it looks like when someone is a devoted sports fan. They look like this. And that's uh, a devoted, you know, you know, you, you just see them. They're, they're devoted to what they are. We know what a devoted uh, gym rat looks like. You know, when you see it, you just know, like, that, that's, that, that's what that is, you know. Uh, we understand de- de- to be a devotee, you know. But when we think about being devoted to God, all right, usually the image in our mind is kind of something like this. Not, not it. Come on, you... Not that one. Yeah, we do think of that. That that guy, you know, the guy, you know, like, is that what devotion looks like? Or the, the one you saw, the nun, you know, the, the, the one the, there. Or the third, of course, is this guy, you know? And you kind of think, well, is that what it means? That's what it looks like to be devoted to God. Is that what it looks like? But no, the answer is that the devotion, to be devoted to God, it happens the same way. It's kind of a process, all right, and so uh, the difference between being devoted to God and being devoted to anything else is that devotion to God is what we were made for. We weren't made to be devoted to anything else. That's why Jesus said it is the greatest commandment. This is the will of God. It's because this is where life is found. This is what we were made for. We were made to be devoted to him. It's also different because when you are devoted to God, you can go further in that devotion than you can in any other thing. Because anything else that you're devoted to, it's going to have a a, a kind of a final end. You can go so far in it, and then you hit a wall. Because things can only go so far, they can only go so deep. You can only work out for so long, and and you're old. You can't do it anymore, you know, unless you're Jack LaLanne and you're doing push-ups and you die at at age 95. But that's like less than one one one-hundredth of one percent of all the people that ever lived. You know, it's it's just not something that we do. But with God... He says that he's an all-consuming fire, and he also describes himself as unending. He's the beginning, and he is the end, but he really has no end. He's infinite. And so as much as we are devoted to him, the more of ourselves we give up, the more of him we receive, and that never ends. It only intensifies forever. 
And what we find in that is that we find that there is life there because God delivers on what he promises. Every other devotion ultimately will take more from us than what it gives. But God, he fills everything that's yielded to him and he delivers on that which he promises, okay? And so we're studying the life and teaching of the apostle Paul because he is an example held up for us in scripture of what it looks like when a life is devoted to God. And so as we go through our study, again, we're going to travel through the seven C's of the process of devotion, of how it happens. And quickly, again, just so I can drill it into your mind as we go forward, is that the first C that you go through in a devotion to God is the C of context. There's a story that leads you to the place of interest and interaction where you first introduce and know God. Then there's the second C of conversion, when you come to know him and a relationship begins. Then there's the C of cultivation where he begins to deepen you and reveal himself to you and teach you and grow you and prepare you and train you and all of the things that he's doing in you to prepare you for eternity. There's a cultivation that happens. And then there's the, uh, the sea of calling where he reveals to you something that he has made you for gifts that fit in a particular application, a life, something, a a ministry, a mission, a a something that he's given you to do. uh, That is your purpose, your calling, which then moves into the sea of continuation. And that is that you're growing, you're being faithful, you're plodding along. It isn't like, you know, a firework that just goes up and, and has a moment and then it burns out and it's gone, but there's a continuation And then there's a culmination. Your life on earth will come to a place where you will pass the baton of what you have been onto whoever will remain, you know, and your time on earth will come to an end and you'll move on from here. And then the last C is the crown. That is what lasts in for all of eternity. And we're going to see these things throughout the, uh, the example that's laid before us through Paul. Now, the reason why we're doing this is not academic. It's not so that we can learn and take a test and say, okay, I know this about Paul. I know this about devoted life. No, no, the reason is this. It's because when you understand the destination, that is where you're headed, it makes sense of the individual moments along the way. Do you understand? Okay, so if you know what God is bringing you to ultimately, a full devotion to him, then it makes sense of the past present of your life. Why did I go through that? Why am I going through this? And when you see it in the big picture, it makes sense. And you say, okay, God, I understand. And so that is uh, part of our purpose. There's so much more. So we are in the C, the first C of this journey, and it is the C of context. And last week we talked about context from God's point of view. And that is that God has set the stage for a devoted life in providing his son as a sacrifice for sin and giving an invitation to whosoever will to repent of their sin, to be washed white as snow and to come purely and wholly into a communion, deep, intimate relationship with himself, paid for completely by God, initiated and maintained by God. And he's given us his church and his Holy Spirit as a garden, a fertile ground wherein our roots can be set and we can grow. That is the context of devotion from God's perspective. Now tonight, we're going to look at context 
from Paul's perspective and ours, okay? Because we also have a story. We have a background. There are a series of events that happen in our lives that bring us to the place where we first encounter God. And and nobody can be just born saved. No one comes out of the womb and they already know God. They come to know God at a certain point as he does things uh, within their life. And so what are the conditions or what were the conditions, events, and circumstances that led Paul into the sea of conversion? And and as we do, of course, we see what it does in our life and we understand uh, that we need to. Now, last week we talked about John 3.16, that famous verse that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We came to that word that whosoever that whosoever believes on him. And we talked about how inclusive that is, that, that, that a whosoever is literally anyone that is human with a pulse, is a candidate for salvation. But tucked within that whosoever, there is a little bit more context. There's a little bit more to it than that. Because Jesus would go on to say in John chapter 6, verse 44, He would declare and he would say that no one can come to me unless the father draws him. So there's another part to the whosoever believes. There's a part in that where God does a work in an individual to draw them and bring them to the place where they come to Christ to put their faith and trust in him for salvation. There's context in that. And so the drawing of a person to the father or to the son by the father is the context of a person's life that leads them to conversion. Okay. Now, if you are here tonight and you know, Jesus Christ, you're born again, you're saved. You've had an encounter with God. Then you know that that didn't happen by accident. It wasn't just this random thing that one day you woke up and said, I'm saved. You know, I never thought about God and now I'm saved. You know, you know that it wasn't by chance. It wasn't random. There's a context to it. And what Paul tells us about himself a little bit later in his life, he's older and he's reflecting on all of what has happened throughout his life. He tells us in the text that the work of God drawing him to the son happened before he was even born. His context reaches way back before he even drew his first breath. It started in the womb. And he sees now God at work to draw him to Christ even from the time of his uh, conception. And everything that ever happened in his life or to him was funneling towards that moment when he would come to know Jesus. So what do we know about the context that leads a person to Christ? And that includes us. And and I've got three things for you tonight uh, to consider. You can write them down if you want. The points will go up on the screen as we talk about them. But the first one is this, is that your context, that is the story of your conversion or God drawing you to Christ, your context predates your arrival here on earth. God started working in you to bring you to Christ before you were even born. Paul recognized that about himself, and it's true about everyone else as well. Now, God was working in Paul's parents' choices in a way that would position his outcome later in life. Now, just think about that for a minute. 
God was working in your parents' choices to position you in a way where you would come to Christ later on in your life. That's an amazing thing to think about. And what do we know about the Apostle Paul? We know that his heart and soul were in Jerusalem. He loved his heritage, he loved his people, and he loved God's country. The problem was, it wasn't his country. Because as much as he loved Jerusalem, he wasn't from Jerusalem. He was actually born 350 miles away from Jerusalem and raised in a city called Tarsus, which was part of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, far away. So this man whose heart was in Jerusalem was born in a Roman city in Roman culture that had only a small Jewish community. Now think about it for a minute. If you know anything about Jewish history or you can put yourself in the shoes of a a young Jewish boy who loves his heritage, the ambition of every young Jewish male was to be called by and taught by a rabbi. It was called being a Talmudim or a student of a rabbi. And that was what you would train for. They would go to schools from a young age and begin learning the scriptures. And and they would learn to debate and reason and think through scriptures. And, And the smartest ones would then be called by a rabbi to become Talmudim or disciples of the rabbi so that they could then be trained more in depth, more intensely, and then ultimately they would have the authority of that rabbi that would go forward. Now, that is why when you read about Jesus, who was a rabbi, walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he says to the fishermen, hey, come follow me. That's why they left their nets and just followed him immediately. Because that, the parents would be like, go, go. That, that's like a scout of a major league baseball team coming to you and saying, hey, I want your son. You don't say like, I'm sorry, he's got to finish his shift. You said, no, go, go. This is, this is what we have hoped for and prayed for you your whole life that you would have this opportunity to be the student of a rabbi. And I imagine that that was Paul's deep desire from the time that he was a child. He loved these things. We know that. We've read it. We will read it even more. That this is who he was. He was a Jew through and through. You know, it would be like if your ambition is music but you're born a thousand miles from Nashville. And you think, oh, if only, if only, if only. Your your, your passion is acting, but you live 3,000 miles from Hollywood. Praise the Lord. (laughs) You don't don't know how blessed you are if that's your your condition, you know, that you're in. You know, your, your passion is baseball, but you weren't born in the Dominican Republic. You know, you just, it's not going to happen, you know? And, 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 and so you have this thing and you think there's a mistake here because everything in me says that life would be perfect if I was here, but I'm not. And I'm missing out. There's this FOMO thing that's going on. And I wonder what his imagination was like as a, as a young child, you know, that was in this place, in this position, very unique. My boys are, are kind of in that stage where they, you know, they imagine things and they play things out. And uh, they're into guns right now. You know, you, every young boy, I think, passes through that phase, whether you teach them that or not. You know, like, you, don't, you could be like an anti-gun person, and there's going to come a point where your, your young male is going to take a piece of toast, chew it into the shape of a gun, and point it, and, and just go, pew, 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 because guns and boys is just something, right? And so, my boys are in that, that stage where they're into guns, and so, I thought it would be a really good idea 
to, um, I wanted to show them this clip uh, from the movie Commando. And, and I, I, it was BC days, okay? I wasn't saved then. I wouldn't show them the whole movie, but there's this epic scene in that movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of is going to rescue his daughter and take on a whole country by himself. And he, he gets out of this little boat and he's wearing nothing but a Speedo. And, and he's got this little boat full of weapons and you just watch him for a minute, like suit up. And he puts camouflage on his face and guns in his holster and zips up and knife and, the, and it's epic. And then he goes on this rampage where he takes out a whole army. And I thought, these kids are going to love this, seeing all these guns. And so I show him this scene, starting with that and then, and then the rest. And I preface it. I said, hey, I don't remember. If there's bad language in this part, I'm going to shut it off. And, and there wasn't, you know, in that part. You know, it's just shooting and, and gore, you know, but theatrical. And, and they're watching and they're indifferent. They're like, they're just watching. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like when I saw this for the first time, like, and they're just watching. And so I, we, we finish and I say, okay, go get ready for bed. And true story, I, I right then and there, like I nodded off for a minute. Like I was just sitting there. It was their bedtime. They go and I nod off. And a minute later, my son Riley, he shakes me, right? And he's standing in front of me and he's wearing nothing but underwear. <laughs> And he has a toy gun shoved down this side, one in the back. He's got his rifle with his homemade harness around his thing. And he's covered with little pieces of duct tape for camouflage all over his body. And then he flexes and he goes, ah, you know, and I just said, oh my, it got in. Like it definitely, you know, and you see their imagining. But I wonder like, what was it like for Paul? right? When he was that age, did he like set up, like they, they would debate. So they would have each of them a pulpit. Did he have his stuffed animals behind all the different pulpits? And he would be like, what do you think about God's name? You know, and, and because that's who he was at the core of his being. He just, he loved Jewish things. That's what, what it was. Okay. Now, what did that drive that was in him coupled with the lack of opportunity, the FOMO, the missing out. What did that do for Paul? I believe it caused him to study that much harder, to work that much harder, to strive that much more, knowing that he didn't have the opportunity that he would have if he lived in Jerusalem. He was 350 miles away. However, he was in a Roman city, being steeped in Roman culture, and custom, and actually he was a citizen of the Roman Empire, which those that were born in Jerusalem did not have the privilege of. And all of those things would prove clutch for Paul later on in his life. He would need each of those things that he thought were mistakes later on when God called him and gave him a ministry. So the conditions of Paul's birth and origins served him and saved him in ways that he could never know or see when he was lamenting them in his youth. And I think about that in the context of your experience and mine. You know, we think about the things like, oh, I missed it by a generation. If I was born in the 70s, man, I would have done good. 
Or if I had the economy of the 80s, I would be sitting so pretty right now. And I'm just, I missed it. I missed it. I missed it. I was born in the wrong family. I was born in the wrong time. I was born in poverty. I was born with a single parent. I was underprivileged. I lived in an abusive environment. I I lost my parents at a young age. I resonate with a different generation. And we think of those things in our own lives, but because we can't see what God is doing in the big picture, we think we, we lost out on it, okay? Paul was not born in Jerusalem because God didn't want Paul born in Jerusalem. And he couldn't see it at the time, but he came to a place where he would say that from my mother's womb, this was the perfect will of God for what he was doing in ways that I couldn't see. You know, um, my, my wife uh, hates it when I talk about her in the sermon. That's why she sits in the very back. It's so that if you go look at her right now, uh, you know, it would be awkward for you, so you don't do it. And that's why she sits back there. Uh, in the back, you know, but um, she played a very large part in me coming to Christ. And, and I almost never met her. When we think about how all of that played out and the whole thing, it almost didn't happen. Um, her parents were, they were kind of in the hippie era, you know, and uh, um, her dad was a truck driver and her mom was a waitress and her dad happened to stop in at the, the, the diner where her mom worked and they struck up a conversation and they hit it off and long story short, they end up getting married. And, and not too long after that, they conceived Georgia and um, they, they, they be, move around a lot. And so she was born actually in Watertown. Um, they moved a couple of times. She ended up in Binghamton for a while, Binghamton, New York. And then her dad was offered a job. He had an opportunity, didn't need it, but given an opportunity if they wanted to relocate again and move to Rochester, which is where I'm from where we met, uh, to take this job. And so he takes the job and they moved to Hilton, which is my hometown. All right. Uh, that almost didn't happen. You know, there were so many things that, that played into her landing there. Okay. Me now, I was raised in a very strict household. And when I say strict, you know that you, you hear the word restrictive. Okay. That's what it was. I lived in a very restrictive household. I was not allowed to get dirt on my shoes. You know, uh, the answer was no. We learned not to ask, you know, it was just, that was the kind of household that I grew up in and it was very difficult. Okay. Um, but then what happened in my early high school years is that my parents separated and then they divorced. And, and that is an awful thing to go through. I mean, if you have it in your power at all to not put your kids through that, please don't put your kids through that. Okay. Because it's awful. It's painful. It's destructive. However, because my parents separated and divorced, it loosened the restrictions that were so heavily placed upon me as a younger child significantly. So when it came time to ask if I could go on a class trip during my high school years, the answer was yes instead of no. And I was allowed to go on this trip. And when I got on the bus, I saw that there was an empty seat next to Georgia. And I thought, well, that's a nice place to sit. And so we struck up a conversation. We hit it off. And the long story uh, short is that we fell in love and got married. And then later, and then we, didn't get, we got saved Okay, I'm not telling you the whole story of our life right now. Okay, but, but, but we almost never met. And our relationship was very significant in bringing both of us to Christ. But it almost never happened. Okay, God was working in the decisions our parents were making to position us to a place where he could use the events and circumstances to draw us to himself. 
And it often isn't until much later on that you can see how the dominoes and the sequence fell in a way that God used it to bring it back around to you. Okay. The point is that things happen to us that are outside of our control that are shaping our devotion story later on. Our context predates our arrival here on the earth. Paul said he was separated from the womb. The other thing, second thing, second point is that your context, and this will go up on the screen. You can write it down. Your context also involves your achievements. The things that you accomplish, the things that you achieve, the things that you do in your life prior to coming to Christ also play a part in what God is doing and what he will do. Okay. We know that had a drive to make something of himself in the Jewish religion. He said that in our text in Galatians chapter one, he said that he profited much in the Jewish religion, going even further in it than his fathers and his teachers and his mentors and the people that he looked up to. And he was driven in that way. At a young age, he was probably brought to Jerusalem by his parents. He saw the temple. He saw the scribes. He saw the ceremonies. He heard the teachings and the debates. And it started a fire in him and it led him down a path that he would say profited him much in the Jewish religion. We know from reading Philippians chapter three, that he had heritage lineage. He was an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. He had sacrament circumcised the eighth day. He went through all of the customs. He was educated. He was disciplined. He had control over his behavior and over his own life. And he did whatever he had to do even unto the persecution and murdering of Christians in order to advance as far as he could in the arena that he was living in. At a certain age, he moved to Jerusalem. We know that because he tells us that he studied at the feet of a rabbi named Gamaliel. That would be the equivalent of being accepted into a very, very good college back in the day when that meant something. You know, uh, and, and so Gamaliel was a prominent rabbi of the day. Paul found favor with Gamaliel. Gamaliel accepted Paul as a student and Paul became eventually, he was awarded the position of a Pharisee. And that was exclusive. There were only 6,000 Pharisees and you had to be sharp in order to be one. Paul became one. He profited and excelled. We also know that he advanced to a place where he became a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was also an exclusive group. There were only 70 and they were the equivalent of the legislative body of the nation. They were the judges, the rulers, those that would vote on matters. Acts chapter 26, verse 10, Paul says that he gave his vote. The word voice that you see in in, uh, the second half of the verse, uh, it says that he gave his voice against them. That's his vote. He was a voting member of the Sanhedrin, also a very exclusive position that he had. He was driven and he was driving, but he didn't know God. He was religious, but he was lost. He didn't know Jesus. He wasn't saved. Now, in spite of the fact that he was lost, there were certain things that Paul attained that worked to his advantage during that season. Number one, Paul had a thorough and complete knowledge and understanding of Old Testament scripture. And that will profit you even if you don't know Christ yet. 
Because the moment you come to know Christ, all of that is going to come to life and it's all going to connect in an amazing way. I, I was brought up in, in, a, in the Catholic church. I was not saved. I didn't know God in the context of that. Some people do. Some people can. I did not. But I did know Bible stories. I had learned about Noah's Ark. I had learned the parables. I had learned uh, the, the stories in the Gospels. That was in there. And when Jesus came into my life and the light of God was shined on all of that, it blew my mind because it made sense for the very first time. And it connected. I understood how Noah connected to Jesus. And I mean, it was just amazing. It was like the knee bone connected to the hip bone and now the thing's moving. You know, it was, it was living. It was powerful. Paul had a working knowledge of the Old Testament. He also had discipline. He had order and he knew how to prioritize his life. You don't get to be a member of the Sanhedrin if you don't have a little bit of, uh, of mental acuity. He also had the ability to debate. He had persuasion skills and he was a decision maker. And he was also a leader. All of those things were true about Paul contextually before he knew Jesus. That was in him, okay? You ever seen when they're building a building that the first thing that they build is the elevator shaft? There, there's a building going up um, kind of on the, the north side of Poughkeepsie, between Poughkeepsie and Hyde Park, uh, kind of behind where Stop and Shop is. And, and you, what you see is you just kind of see the site plan and you see the elevator shaft right there. And it's just this, it almost looks like a fat chimney, you know, a chimney the size of an elevator that just goes up. And you look at that and you think, that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, why in the world is that there? Like, what are they doing? It's an elevator shaft. And you build an elevator shaft first, okay, because first of all, it's out of the way if you, you can't build it after the building is built because now you're retrofitting things and cutting holes and whatnot. In a larger building, it's where the crane goes. If you ever see the cranes in the city, you know, the big ones, oftentimes the cranes are built right where the elevator shaft is going to go. So when they take it apart, there's already a hole there and they can just insert an elevator, you know? So the elevator shaft goes first, but it doesn't make sense, okay, when it's just an elevator shaft. You're looking at it going like, why is that there? What's it there for? And what God does when God is doing something in your life is that he puts the elevator shaft in your life first. What's the elevator shaft? It's how you ascend. It's how you are elevated. It's how you raise up. It's where you will go. It's what happens on the various floors. And God creates the framework for all of that in our life before he completes the building. And oftentimes it doesn't make sense. God, why are you asking me to grow up in an underprivileged household in an underprivileged area. God, why are you calling me and asking me to grow up in a generation that has lost their mind, their collective mind? Why are you asking that of me? God, why are you asking me to love a, a, a grumpy man? Why are you asking me to raise unruly kids? Why are you doing these things? It's all an elevator shaft, okay? You don't know yet what God is doing, but when the context becomes clear in the light of Christ working in your life, you'll look at all that and say, oh, you built that so that I would be ready for this. It's the elevator shaft. It goes up first. So Paul had all these things that were going on for him that he didn't understand why he was doing it for a totally different reason than what God had planned. Okay. Why did Paul want to advance in the Jews' religion? No doubt, 
He wanted the respect that came from being in those prominent places, that position. No doubt, he wanted the renown. He wanted to be a legend. He wanted uh, the influence that would come from those positions. And for him, he thought, the higher I can go, the better off I'll be. That's what he was building, what he thought. But what he actually built was a pointy stick. You say, what do you mean? Okay, he had everything that he ever worked for. He succeeded in everything that he ever tried. And yet the moment he met Jesus, and we'll see it in the text next week in Acts chapter nine, Jesus encounters Paul and he says, hey, Paul, hey, Paul, how's that pointy stick working for you? Basically, that's what Jesus said. He said, what are you doing? Isn't it hard for you to kick against the goad? What's a goad? It's a pointy stick. It's a pointy stick that you use to get a stubborn ox to go in the right direction. And so Paul is going, I did it. I made it. Why am I empty? I achieved. I hit the numbers. I hit my goal. But why do I feel like something's still wrong? I did it. I'm there. They love me. But why does it feel like it doesn't matter? Like, what, what's going on? It, it, inside, there was something that was bothering him, even though he was succeeding in everything that he was putting his mind to. This isn't what I thought. This isn't helping me. There's something not right in what I'm doing. I'm killing people in the name of a God who is love. I don't get, there's something not right in what I'm doing. Well, then there was a drastic interruption. Because all of a sudden, he's converted. He moves from context into conversion, and there's a drastic life change that happens for him. And here's what happens. God says, all of those things that you worked for were not for what you thought, but I'm going to use all of the things that you learned, all of the discipline, all of the scripture, all of the leadership, all of the culture, I'm going to use all of that to shape the calling that I have made for you before you were even born. Do you realize that even Gamaliel, the rabbi that Paul chose or chose Paul, whichever way you look at it, even that was used by God. Do you know why? Because Gamaliel was one of the only Jewish rabbis that had enough common sense to look at what was going on around him and say, hey, maybe God's in it. Maybe we need to shift our thinking a little bit. No one else would do that. Gamaliel did. That was the influence that was on Paul. Maybe that contributed to Paul's rationale to say, maybe I need to rethink what I'm doing with my life. Maybe I'm going the wrong way. Maybe this isn't working for me and I need to change. Everything in the context of what led Paul to Christ was ordained by God. Paul said, even from the womb. Number three, number three, point three, and then we're done. Is that God does not define you by nor is he restricted by your context. That is everything that's happened in your life leading up to and prior to the point where you come to know Jesus Christ. He's not defining you by it, nor is he restricted by it. You say, why does that matter? And what does it mean? Let me read you a verse. It's first Corinthians chapter 15, verse eight. Okay. Paul is again describing his calling and his ministry. And he's talking, Matt actually taught out of this passage on Sunday about the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul testifies this way of of himself. He says that last of all, he, that is the risen Jesus, was seen by me also 
as of one born out of due time. Okay, watch those words. He says, he was seen, I saw Jesus as of one that was born out of due time. Now, for years, I read that verse as though it was saying that Paul was late to the party, that he was an apostle, but he wasn't with the initial 12 because he was born late. He came late to the party. That's what, but that's not what it, that's not what it says. In the Greek language, when you look it up, the word that is one born out of due time, it is not translated any other way than before due time. That he was born before the due time. Not late to the party, he was early to the party. He was seen of me as one that was born before the due time. What does that mean? Paul was completely Jewish through and through. He was an Israelite right to the core, okay? Now listen, as a consequence of the national rejection of Jesus by the Jewish nation, God pronounced blindness upon the Jews. It's Luke chapter 19, verse 42, and it's not going to go up on the screen, but Jesus was coming in. The disciples were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. They were proclaiming his Lordship as Messiah. And, and the Pharisees said, tell him to stop. He's blaspheming God. And Jesus said, if these should stop, the very rocks would cry out because this is the day that was appointed by Daniel for me to come as Messiah presented to the nation. And they said, no, the collective voice of the Jews was no, we will not have this man rule over us. And it says that Jesus response, it's Luke 19, is that he wept over the city. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you to myself like a mother and gathers her chicks, but you would not. And then he said, blindness, for you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, because you did not know the time of your visitation. He says, now these things will be hidden from your eyes. In other words, the pronouncement of heaven of the father through the son upon the Jewish nation is that you are blinded spiritually and practically from understanding me as your Messiah. And that's what happened. Paul said later on, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he said, I want to tell you a mystery. A mystery is a truth that is unseen. He said, the mystery is this, that blindness has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. In other words, it's supernatural. You could literally, in most cases, take a physical risen Jesus and show him to a Jewish person walking on water and raising the dead. And they'd be like, I don't believe. Because it's, it's something that God has done. It's supernatural, okay? That was Paul. He was a Jew. And that's why he says of himself that he was born before due time. Because the time will come when the blinders will be lifted. The time will come when they will say, as Zechariah prophesied, what are these wounds in your hands and your feet? And he will say, these are those which I received in the house of my friends and their eyes will be opened again. But what happened to Paul when he encountered Jesus is that he was blinded for a moment 
And then he was prayed for by Ananias and something like scales fell from his eyes. You know what scales are? They're something that are so tight together that not even air fits through them. I mean, if the eyes of the Jewish people are so held shut by God to see Jesus in the context of who he is, that light can't get in. Nothing can get in. But for Paul, those scales were taken off and he was born to God out of due time, before the due time. It didn't come yet. What does that mean? It means that as an individual, God is not bound by the things that have happened in your past or the things that define you in some way that would keep you back from coming to him. That God can go into and beyond all of that and he can reach you in spite of the things that say, no, you can't. No, you can't. God would not allow Paul to be defined or limited by what his natural restrictions were. They came to Jesus. And actually it was the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. And, and, and he thought he was all good. You know, he's like, yeah, I do all these great things and I give, you know, I do everything. And Jesus said, if you really want to do good, if you really want to please God, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and then, and then follow God and have treasure in heaven. And it says that the rich ruler went away sad because he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to do that. And, and then Jesus turned to his disciples after he went away and Jesus said something crazy. He said, how seldom or how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples looked at him and they're like, well, we kind of want to be rich. And so one of them said to Jesus, he said, Lord, then who can be saved? Everybody, want, everybody's going that kind of looking that way. Everybody wants to, 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 to hit, you know, oil. Like who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said this, he said, it is easier. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to be saved. Now, is it impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? No. no. Trust me, there is somebody that if they could get enough hits on YouTube, they would do it. Okay? They would dissect the elef elephant to the atom and move it through the eye of a needle and say, see, I did it. Okay? No, it can be done. The point is, who's going to put forth the effort? And what Jesus was saying is that there's a lot of effort that's going to go into saving someone who's rich. And they said, it's impossible. And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It is not impossible for God. What is impossible with men is still possible with God. Okay, what does that mean? It means that when you bring God into your equation, your weakness, your limitations, the things that have blinded your eyes, those things actually turn into your biggest opportunities and the platform through which God can work in your life, reach your life and bless your life. Because when he gets the glory for what you can't do, he gives the greater grace. Okay, they told Jacob that he won't go as far because he's not as strong or as confrontational as his brother Esau. They told Ruth that because of her nationality that she'd never make it in the culture. They told Sarah that because of her age, she might push a walker, but she'll never push a stroller. They told David he wasn't big enough. They told Timothy he wasn't old enough. They told Peter that his sin was too great, that he'll never be what he could have been. 
And they told Jesus it's impossible, but Jesus said, with God, nothing shall be impossible. And so it is for you. You say, well, I was raped. I'll never be in a healthy, functional relationship. You say, I was neglected when I was a child. I'll never catch up with the people that had it better than me. I'm the son of mental illness. I'll never know what it means to have joy and stability in my emotions. You say, I have sinned myself out of the reaches of his salvation. And I say to you that God is not restricted or bound by your context. And he doesn't define you by it. Paul would go on to say, after saying that he's one that was born out of due time, he would say, listen, I persecuted the church of God. I'm not worthy of this position. I don't know why God opened my eyes. I don't know why I'm saved. He said, but I can say this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that is the truth concerning every single one of us here. I don't care where you're from, what you've done, what you've been through, how hard your heart is, or anything else that is in the context of what has led you to the place that you are right now. It is not out of God's reach, outside of God's grace, or outside of God's love to get a hold of you, to apprehend you, to interact with you, to commune with you, to come into you, to save you, to grow you, to love you, and to keep you. It is within his hand and in his power. Your context of all the things that have happened in your life are the DNA that makes up your character and they set the stage for what God will do in the ages to come. And no one enters the sea of conversion without passing through the sea of context first because it's your context, your past, your upbringing, the the factors of your life that lead you to faith. And it's your context that brings form to your function. Don't despise it. Don't despise where you've been, what you've been through. Don't degrade it and belittle it and think that it's nothing or less. Don't hide from it who you are and don't waste it. Because the only bad context that a person can have is the context that doesn't lead a person to conversion and into relationship with Jesus. Because your context, that is the factors that make up who you are, those are not your story. Those are the background. That's the cinematography. The story is your relationship with Jesus. And if you never come into a relationship with Jesus, then your whole life is just your context and you're wasting the whole thing. It's nothing more than just the facade of what is seen on the peripheral, but there's nothing on the inside. Every single human being will find devotion to something. But until you find devotion to God, whatever you're devoted to is going to leave you empty and is going to take more from you than it gives to you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ here tonight, you've put your faith and your trust in him then commit your context to Christ. Say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Because many of us, we walk around in the condemnation of our past and we say, well, I, I am defiled. I am ashamed. He's embarrassed. He feels sorry for me. No, 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 no. Those things are done by him. And the things about your past and present that you hate or the things that you love, are things that he has allowed or will use for something that's yet to come in your future. It's why Paul would say to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 28, he would say that all things work together for what? How many things? All things. From the womb, no matter what you've been to. If you are not a believer here tonight, 
And for whatever reason, you're sitting in a church this late still. (laughs) Maybe you wanted to leave a long time ago. But you're here and you don't know Jesus. I ask you this question, is the Father drawing you? Are the things in your life that you have achieved or obtained or chased after, have they become nothing more than a pointy stick? And it's a frustration to you because what you've obtained is not what you thought it would be, or it's not delivering on the promise that it made, or it is beginning to reveal itself to you as a waste of time, something that you've been chasing for so many years, and it comes to be so empty. It could be that very pointy stick that is saying to you tonight, there is life. There is life in the name of Jesus. And it doesn't have to be wasted. It can be revived. It can be redeemed. Listen to me. The the God of heaven gave up his son upon a cross 2,000 years ago to pay the price for the sin that was separating you from himself. He made the way and and created the platform for you to come. And now he has created a whole list of things that started long before you were born. Circumstances to bring you to the place where you would hear the message of his son and have the opportunity to say, I have been living my life for the wrong thing. And what I'm feeling and experiencing inside is a testimony to the fact that I am not truly alive. And Jesus says that I am come to give you life and that more abundantly. And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And his invitation to you tonight is that if you don't know him personally, if you will call on the name of the Lord and you will say, Jesus, I believe. And I put my full weight and trust in you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins and reconcile me to yourself and write my name in your book. He will come into your life in a way that you could never imagine and begin to put together all of the little pieces that you never understood. The elevator shaft begins to make sense. Father, I thank you tonight for your word and, and thank you, Lord, for your ways that you're able to knit together all the little pieces that make up our lives in such an amazing way. And I just pray tonight, Lord, for every person here that that we would see, Lord, that our eyes would be opened to be able to see everything that you've done and everything that you're doing and that it would encourage us in what you're going to do. So help us, Lord. I pray for those that don't know you, Lord, that you'd stir up faith, that you'd stir up hope. God, that you'd stir up courage for them to step off of the path that they're on and onto the one that you've called them to. And Lord, I pray for every one of us here that we would have the ability and the vision to be able to see that from before the womb, before we were separated from the womb, we've been called by your grace. And we thank you, Lord, for forgiving us for the things in our past. We thank you, Lord, for using all of the things that we've been through to shape who we are today and who we're gonna be in the future. And that we're not defined by you or restricted in any way by any of that. Father, would you become more real to each one of us? And would you strengthen our devotion, Lord, as we surrender every part of our heart to you? And so we make it our prayer tonight. God, do your will in us, in our lives. Thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. 
If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.